Good morning. Please stand for the scripture reading. The scripture today is Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19, and that's on page 489 of the Blue Bibles. If you do not have a Bible at home, please take one of these homes at home as a gift, so you have a copy of the Word of God at home. So, page 489, Mark 3, verses 7 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him, for he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up to the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he had also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thus says God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your call. We thank you that you have seen us, that you've known us, and that you've called us to follow you, to be your disciples, to be with you, to be sent out by you. And God, we thank you that this has always been your way. This has always been your method. And so God, we pray that we would, uh, if we have grown dull in our hearing to your call, Lord, we pray that we would hear it clearly today, that we would be reminded of when you first called us. And Lord, what that means to our life, all the many ramifications of that. So thank you, Lord, for your word. I pray that you would enable me to preach it um, in a way that is glorifying to you and, and that the people gathered before me would hear it in a way that is glorifying to you and that you would be exalted in this moment and your, your character, your nature, your love for us would be made clear in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So just as we saw last week, uh, Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3, the, it details five disputes, five separate disputes that the Pharisees had with Jesus. And in the end of Mark, or in the end of the passage we read last week in, in Mark 3, 6, We see that the Pharisees were actually plotting with their political and social rivals, the Herodians, to uh, construct a strategy to actually destroy Jesus. Now, this is an incredible fact because this happens really early in Jesus's ministry that, that, you know, the the hatred and the vitriol that that Jesus's opponents had for him didn't wait till much nearer to the cross. It happened very early in his ministry. So... What happens in response to all this, Jesus leaves Capernaum, 
where everything that we've read so far pretty much has happened. And he begins to conduct his ministry from the shores of Galilee. Now, Galilee is uh, often called the Sea of Galilee. is actually a large lake in the northern part of Israel. And the two reasons he relocates his ministry are, the text tells us, are the press of the crowds that are coming to him for healing and for deliverance. And secondly, it, it, well, that first thing, that, that, that kind of keeps him from, from being able to do what he's primarily came to do, which is preach because of the press of the crowds. But secondly, um, there, there's, this, there's this implication that there's a, uh, a desire on Jesus' part to avoid further conflict with the Jews before the predetermined time. Now, let's talk about the crowds for a minute the crowds were a constant in Jesus' ministry. We see this in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and the conflict that he was having with the religious authorities did not change that at all. Sometimes if the ones that are in charge take an unpopular opinion of the one who's causing all the trouble, that might cause the crowds to stay away. Not in Jesus' case. The crowds were increasing and becoming even more pressing uh, as he as he was being you know, harassed and oppressed by the religious authorities. Mark tells us that many people had heard what Jesus was doing. So there's this word of mouth element where, where information is being transferred, you know, far and wide of this healing ministry, this delivering ministry of Jesus. He's, he's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And because of the, the times they lived in, this news travels very fast. Imagine if you had seen Jesus heal a leper or raise a paralytic, as we've already seen him done this early on in Mark, and you had a relative who lived a 100 miles away who was a leper or a paralytic, you would want to get news of that ability to that person really quick. And so Jesus, we can't forget... We have literally said this over and over and over since we've been looking at Mark. Jesus was, was concerned primarily with proclaiming something, with preaching something. And that something was the arrival of God's kingdom. He is not just inviting people to experience miracles. He's saying that there is a literally a continental shift in the way the world's, world works that is happening right before their eyes. The, the kingdom of God has arrived, and with this, he emphasizes in his preaching the eternal benefits for souls of, of that arrival. He's talking about things like forgiveness and, and restoration of God and things like that. But he's not just focusing on, even though he, we see it in his ministry as a confirming sign, he's not just focusing on the temporal benefit for the bodies of the people that are hearing. Um, but people still, the text tells us, didn't come for what Jesus was saying. What were they coming for? For what they heard that he did. And they were coming from literally everywhere. The, you know, you see this list of names, and if you're not familiar with biblical geography, which that's okay, you wouldn't understand this, but, but he's, uh, Mark tells us that they were coming from Jerusalem and Judea and Idumea, which are far to the south of where Jesus is operating right now in Galilee. Um, and then he says that they're coming from the regions on the other side of the Jordan, which would be east. And, and they're coming from there. And then the largely Gentile regions around Tyre and Sidon to the north of Galilee. And, and what's happening here, this is not just 
sheer popularity. Believe me, he's popular. And, and he, if you want to use a very common word to us, he's becoming famous. But that's not the point. The point is that there is something prophetic that is happening here that was prophesied over and over and over again by many Old Testament prophets. I'll give you a small sample of that from Jeremiah chapter 31. This is what Isaiah, or Jeremiah prophesies is going to happen in the, in the advent of the Messiah. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the coastlands far away. Now that's interesting to me. Where is Jesus ministering right now? I just told you, where is he ministering? He's ministering on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So he says, he says, Hear, O nations, declare it in the coastlands far away. Say, He who scattered Israel will gather him and keep him as like a shepherd keeps his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and has redeemed him from hands too strong for him. Now what has happened is, Israel has had a, a history at this point. I'll give you a big chunk so we can do this fast. But they had a history where they had kings and the kings were wicked. And so God judged the nation because the nation lived like the kings. And so they, they, uh, he, he had them thrown into exile. Their city was destroyed. Their temple was destroyed. And Jesus comes on the scene with all these prophecies having been said that this is only a temporary arrangement, that all of Israel would be gathered again. And Jesus makes it clear later in his ministry that his appearance, his first advent, was first for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. God was actually offering them a time to receive the kingdom um, uh, for you know that he had promised to them from long ago. And so he, he promises to restore them after their punishment, after their exile, after their defeat, after they, they, their oppression. But there's a, there's a catch here. They're going to be restored to God, but they won't be restored to God through the law or through the temple or through the priesthood, but they'll be restored to God perfectly through the person of Christ, who will be the perfect representative of the law, the perfect uh, living temple, the perfect priest for all of them. It will be through Christ's ministry that they will reconnect with God. Now, the beauty of this story in the Gospels is that some of them did recognize that Jesus was the promised Messiah. They recognized that he was the son of David. They recognized that he was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. But others would see him as a threat to their highly esteemed traditions. So the Pharisees were exemplary. We talked about them last week. They were exemplary of those kind of men. Over and over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus would expose their shallow religiosity and their proud hypocrisy for the sham that it was. He would he, Constantly he would show this and how weak it was compared to God's truth. He even called them a brood of vipers. He called them or compared them to dead men's tombs. He said, you're whitewashed and beautiful and ornate on the outside. But man, inside you are containing nothing but death and decomposition. It's clear from the text, even early on in his ministry like this, that Jesus never feared, nor was he intimidated by these sanctimonious blowhards. Yet, he retired to the seashore away from the population center of Capernaum because Jesus was operating on a divine schedule. His time to face these men and their bloodlust would certainly come. It would absolutely come. But, but that time was not here 
yet. And so for these two reasons, the crowds and his enemies, Jesus moves his ministry to the shores of Galilee. And he even had a boat prepared so that he could preach without being rushed and crushed by the people coming to him for physical healings. In fact, the boat, uh, Luke tells us, pushed a little bit into the water, kind of served as a stage to give him some separation from the people so he could uh, preach to them. Again, Mark tells us... Um, that it, just like he did in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark 1:24, he tells us that even under this new ministry format from the seashore, that whenever people with impure spirits came into contact with Jesus, the devils in them would cry out, "You are the Son of God." Now. I want to point this out. Mark has already told us this in chapter 1. He said that there was a, a man with an unclean spirit in the synagogue. Jesus came in and the man immediately recognized him as the Son of God. But Mark tells us this. That Why is he repeating this information? Because he's telling this in a portion of his gospel where supposedly the godliest men on the block, the, the, the top notch, the highest echelon of religious authority and wisdom are questioning Jesus. They're harassing Jesus. They're oppressing Jesus. They question his right to forgive sins or to invite sinners near to himself. They, they, they question his disciples for not rigorously fasting like they do. They browbeat him for letting his disciples eat grain on the Sabbath and for healing a tormented man on the Sabbath. They doubt him. These Pharisees, the religious leaders, absolutely doubt him and are beginning to despise him and desire to destroy him. And yet unclean spirits fall in his presence and recognize him. Now, you can shake your head at the Pharisees and you can say, man, these guys are knuckleheads. How could they do that? But I want you to understand something. I told you this last week that the spirit of the Pharisee is alive and well. I want you to understand that often people who are experts in the rules of religious protocol and that sit highest on the ladder of spiritual hierarchy can absolutely miss the heart and the hand of God by a mile. They can miss exactly what God is doing. Well, how is, how is that possible? It's because we allow ourselves to be blinded by traditions and interpretations. We say this has to be the way it is because it's the way it always was when I was a kid. This is what my grandma taught me. This is the, the, you know, you know, give me that old time religion. It was good enough for Paul and Silas and it's good enough for me. And harboring pride and sin within our hearts and neglecting the word of God will always blind us to the absolute truth of God. It always will. There's no second option for this. And even here, though Jesus could have capitalized on the fact that unclean spirits recognized him and trembling to him, he could have turned to the Pharisees and said, see, these unclean spirits get it. What's wrong with you? But he didn't do that. Jesus instead refused to let them speak. Why? He didn't need their testimony. He, he would let his own gracious words and his own 
powerful works validate who he was, he would not let that task fall to devils or even to people. Remember in Mark chapter 1 when he healed the man of leprosy and he said, don't tell anyone. We'll see him do that over and over again in Scripture because he wanted his words and his works to validate him. He didn't need other people to do so. So Jesus continued his ministry around the Sea of Galilee, and he went in his boat from place to place, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and seeing it confirmed with signs and and wonders of healing and deliverance. But something happens in verse 13 of the passage that Gloria read to us. And it says this, it says, uh, in verse 13, it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside. Now, in Luke's account of what's to follow, he tells us that Jesus had ascended the mountain to pray and that he spent the entire night, as was often his habit in Scripture, in fervent prayer. A new phase of his ministry was beginning on this night. And due to the importance of it, he wouldn't proceed without spending time first petitioning the Father. Now, think about that. You know, sometimes we read the text and we don't think deeply about it. But think about this. Being God himself, raise your hand if you believe that Jesus was 100% God. Raise your hand. Of course, of course. So being God himself, could he not have made his next move absolutely confidently? And just done it? What's this need of this night of prayer before he makes this next move? Well, I'm telling you that being the perfect man, because Jesus wasn't just 100% God, he was 100% man, fully God, fully man. He sets an example for us that we would be wise to take heed of in the face of every single difficulty we face. Now, Jesus was God. Jesus was the perfect man. Need I point out to you that none of in this room, none of us in this room are God? Do, are we all in agreement on that? No one's under some messianic delusion that you're God this morning? None of you bold enough to admit it, at least? Some of your wives are saying, oh yeah, somebody in this room is under that delusion. But... We can admit that we're not God, but we're also not perfect in our humanity either, are we? So here's the question to you. If the Son of God, the Son of Man, displayed such utter dependence upon God in His decision-making, why would we ever dare to jettison the burden to pray from ourselves? See, what it shows is pride. It shows that we have a very high estimation of our ability to make decisions for our own life. Oh, we just sang it, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. Why? All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Anybody found that to be true? So may God convict us and work in us to make us people of not prayer, but of unending prayer. Paul said it very concisely in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. See, true faith and the demonstration 
of true faith is this, that it fuels persistence in prayer. Like with Jesus, prayer should precede all of our actions. This is what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, prayer girds human weakness with divine strength. It turns human folly into heavenly wisdom. It gives troubled mortals the peace of God. We know not what prayer can do. Oh, man, it frustrates me when I look at my life and see what a, what a lack of prayer there is. And I think of what would, what would happen in my own heart to know and to trust and to believe and to, to, to see God move if I would just learn to pray. So like the disciples, let us be bold enough to ask Jesus, teach us to pray. Another thing Spurgeon said, he said, if you don't pray, pray until you pray. That's what he said. Classic Spurgeon right there. Mark 3.13, the fuller uh, portion of that verse, Jesus went up uh, up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. So here's the picture. You know, sometimes when we see pictures of Jesus or movies of Jesus, we see him, you know, with 12 guys following behind him. But Jesus, what we got to understand, even up at this point, Jesus has been followed by a multitude and not just a multitude, a faithful multitude who wanted to be near him, wanted to hear what he had to say. And, and this has been happening since his popularity began to increase. It was like a, a church following around with him. He'd see the, look out into the crowd and he'd see the same faces because people were following with him. But from that crowd, he selected for himself a group of 12 disciples. And that's really interesting because how many, does anybody remember how many tribes of Israel there were? How many? 12. There were 12 tribes. What Jesus is doing, I said this earlier, he's calling Israel back to himself and he is going to establish a new Israel. And and so, uh, and and with this, there's a great symbolism in this choosing of 12 disciples. It's, It's incredible. But did you notice who Jesus called? Now, if, you, if you've if you been reading the Gospels for a while and you know a little bit about these characters that are in there, you've you, you got to really take notice of that list of names that Gloria read us. He, he did not call the most qualified. Everyone should go, whew, thank God. He didn't call the most qualified. He didn't call the most talented. Sometimes he didn't call the most gregarious. These guys could sometimes be jerks. He didn't call the most wealthy. He didn't call the most connected. See, he called those, and Mark, I love the way more than any of the other three Gospels that give this list like this, or the other two Gospels that give this list. I love the way Mark puts this. Jesus called those whom he wanted. Man. See, Jesus wasn't, and may I say still isn't, motivated by the resumes of those who gathered around him. He's motivated by his own desire to know you. He's motivated by his own desire to make you a part of his kingdom, to train you. Man, this is so confirmed by what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Think about the Corinthians. If you, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, they were a hot mess. They were, there was all kinds of, you know, terrible stuff going, you know, we, we have 
guest here today. And, and the Corinthian church was the kind of thing that as soon as you became a member and you found out what was going on at the first business meeting, you'd probably turn around and walk right back out. But this is what Paul says to the Corinthian church. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing those things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, everybody say, because of Him. Say it, because of Him. You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. See, a true believer doesn't arrogantly assume that they are more than they actually are. They recognize, get ready, get ready for your ego to take a hit. True believers recognize that among the world we are the foolish. Anybody want to take that designation upon yourself? We're the foolish. We're the weak. We have no noble birth. We're the low and we're the despised. And when we look at that and we recognize that and we recognize that everything that we are and everything we have is all because of grace that was bestowed on us, we certainly don't make our boast in ourselves or our accomplishments. We make our boast in the God who loved us and called us to himself. And I love this. He called those whom he wanted. And the Bible tells us very simply in the book of Mark, they came to him. I love that. See, Jesus' call is irresistible. Like Lazarus when he's in his tomb. When, he, when Jesus calls... When he says, Lazarus, come forth, even the dead must obey. Now, what, what is his call? What are we talking about when he's called? I, when I was growing up in the church I grew up in, I had a very different view of the call of God. First of all, I thought it was always some call to some special job like what I have now. The, that there was this, this thing that happened, that, you know, sunbeams came into my room and angels started singing and I heard, Marcus, you know. Something like that. But I got good news for everyone in the room. Everyone here. If you're a believer, if you're not a believer, I've got great news. See, the call of God is not some ghostly voice from the heavens. It's not some, some stirring on the inside of you. The, the, the call of God has been written in a love letter that looks like this to you. And it says this. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. You've already been called to believe. You've already been called to trust Him. 
So Mark tells us that he appointed 12 of those hundreds who were following him, and he did so with a twofold purpose. This is what Jesus, Jesus did. So first, he called them that they might be with him, is what the text tells us. Jesus' purpose in calling you to be his disciple. Now this, this if you believe me, and that's, that's the thing, you gotta believe me. If you believe me, this is gonna revolutionize some of your religious anxieties. It's gonna take it away. Jesus has not called you to, you know, try to make you, you know, something different in the sense of your morality and clean you up and make you a more respectable citizen. I've always said this, but if you want to be a respectable citizen, the Lions Club will do a great job of that for you. You don't need Jesus. Jesus didn't call you so that you could, you know, put on your Pharisee robes and and have some religious thing. He called you to be his disciple so that he might enjoy your company and you enjoy his. Oh, man, doesn't that feel a lot better than the religious burdens we carry on ourselves? He wants to you to be with him, and he wants to be with you. The Westminster Shorter Catechism famously begins with this question. It's an awesome question. You may not be interested in a catechism, but you should memorize this. The question number one of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? And the answer given is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. If it only said that man's chief end was to glorify God, you'd think, oh my gosh, how do I glorify God? What do I got to do? What do I have to be? What do I have to wear? Or what do I have to do all this stuff? But you're missing the point. Did you know that you glorify God by enjoying God? That's how you glorify Him. So here's the question. Ask yourself this. Look deep inside and say, do I enjoy God? Or do I have a religious affiliation that kind of makes me take Him for granted? See, many believers view their relationship with Christ as purely a legal one. Now, there is a forensic or legal, uh, you know, nature of our relationship to Christ, but they they view it only as a as a purely legal relationship. He, he's like a a realtor or a a lawyer. He gets you what you want and he gets you out of trouble. That's what Jesus does for most people. But see, Christ wants you to know Him. He wants you to be united with Him, to become like Him, to find joy and peace in Him, regardless of your circumstances. Is it any wonder that Jesus tells us that one day many of the most religious or spiritual people amongst us will be cast away and hear him say these words on judgment day. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Doesn't say you never went to church or you never prayed the prayer or walked the aisle. It says, I never knew you. Sometimes we focus all of our attention on the question, do you know Jesus? The question, my brothers and sisters, is does Jesus know you? That's the question. Paul Washer, in his usually fluffy and delicate way, I'm kidding if you know Paul Washer, says this, Sunday morning in America is the greatest hour of idolatry in the whole week. I bet he doesn't get big offerings. There's no way that... I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Sunday morning in America is the greatest hour of idolatry in the week. Why? Because 
most people who are even worshiping God are worshiping a God they don't know. They're worshiping a God that looks more like Santa Claus than the God of Scripture. They're worshiping a God that is a figment of their own imagination. They created a God in their own likeness and they worship the God they've made. Church, let us no longer neglect the pursuit of the true God by the only means we have to truly know Him, His Holy Word. See, trying to pretend that you're a sincere Christian or a Christian at all while ignoring His words for weeks on end, just letting the Bible collect dust, is as scandalous as pretending to be a pilot and trying to fly a group of people to Phoenix. The certain outcome of both endeavors is certain disaster. Somebody's getting hurt if you neglect your word or try to fly people to Phoenix. Having established how Jesus calls him to himself to be with him, notice the second purpose of Jesus' call, he said that he called them that they might that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. So Jesus appointed these men after having called them to be trained to preach the same gospel of the kingdom and to do the works of the kingdom. Soon after we hear the call of Christ to come to him, we will hear the command of Christ to go for him. When Jesus set the man from the the Gerasenes region free from the devils that tormented him. Remember, Jesus asked the devils, what's your name? And he said, we're we're legion for we're many. After all that, and, and he's found clothed and in his right mind, he wanted to go with Jesus to be with him wherever he went. Because of what Jesus had done, he he loved Jesus and wanted to be with him. But Jesus instead gave him a commission. And he said this, go home to your friends. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. And how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. What a joy it brings to the Father. When after being called to the Son and rescued from our sin and from the oppression that we experience from the devil, that we would go and loudly proclaim the wonderful things that the Lord has done for us. Now, can we get real honest? Everyone, you know, we'll just not lie for just a minute. Um, here's how we're going to get honest. If I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I did ask you to raise your hand, how many of you look at sharing the gospel as a chore, as kind of the Christian equivalent of a root canal. I mean, you, you know you've got to have a root canal, but you don't look forward to it. Well, you know you've got to share the gospel, but no one really looks forward to it. Your palms start sweating, your knees start trembling, your voice gets all quavery. But listen, again, I hope this helps you, but when you know Christ, and I'm talking about not being by American standards, a Christian, but when you know Christ after having spent time with him, evangelism, sharing the gospel, takes an entirely different look. It's not about, you know, learning, you know, several questions, memorizing several questions to ask people who don't want to be talking to you anyway. Evangelism is best accomplished 
when it's nothing more than your own personal public praise. What I mean by that is, you will confidently tell the whole world what Jesus has done when you just love Jesus. I've shared this story before, but I have a friend in Odessa that I've known for literally since I was three years old, mentally challenged, and about 10 or 12 years ago, he became, uh, he became engaged and, you know, just blew our minds, met this girl that, that, uh, uh, is perfect for him. And so, uh, he, (laughs) he called me to Odessa and drove down there so that we could have a bachelor party. So, um, the bachelor party was, Pretty pathetic, I'm here to tell you, but, uh, but we, we went to the movies, we went out to eat, and the thing about James was James told everybody, whether they wanted to know or not, that he was in love. So we're buying tickets at the movie, and, and he said, hey, you wouldn't believe it, I've got this, let me show you a picture of this guy, he's like, just buy your tickets and move on. He's like, he's trying to buy popcorn, and he's like, would you like the large, medium, or small? Hey, you want to see a picture of my girlfriend? We're getting married tomorrow, and just on and on and on. And I watched that, and it was hilarious, but I thought, that's how I want to be about Jesus. Man, that just, I'm so in love with Jesus and so amazed that he loves me that I can't help but tell you about it. Man, that's, why am I afraid to talk about Jesus? I want to confidently tell the whole world what he's done. See, the secret of sharing the gospel is not learning techniques. It's falling in love more and more and more and more with Jesus. And then, believe me, you'll talk about him. So how did the disciples learn to preach like Jesus? They did it by hanging on his every word and bringing every care to him. So we see the, the merging here of the scriptures, uh, his own words and, and his, their prayer coming to him with questions. He, they asked him questions like, will you teach us to pray? Like I said earlier, they asked questions like, why could we not cast this devil out? They asked, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom? Man, so many of us are so convinced that we're religious experts on stuff that we haven't asked Jesus a question in years. Ask him. But even more, they reply, they relied on Jesus for the supply of power, like Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit for the same power. The faithfulness of Jesus to support this fledgling band of preachers amazed them to the core. Remember that when Jesus sent them out and they came back saying, behold, or Jesus, they came back and Jesus told them, behold, I have given you authority to to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Jesus says, when you're going, when I command you to go, I'm going to support you. I'm going to be your strength as you go. Jesus still strongly supports those whom he calls, commissions, and empowers. And that is every believer, not just a special class of them. It's not preachers and elders and deacons. It's every member of the body of Christ. You're all called to go if you've been called to come. One thing that's always amazed me is the variety of personalities that make up the twelve. You have headstrong, blue-collar fisherman Simon, who's renamed Peter by Jesus, Peter the Rock. Man, Dwayne Johnson has nothing on Peter. He's the true rock. I thank you for the four of you that got that. 
You have James and John. Now, James and John were given a nickname by Jesus, Boanerges, the sons of thunder. And a lot of people think, oh, it's because sometimes they were a little uh, rambunctious and they asked if they should call down fire on people and things like that. And they asked Jesus if they could be seated at the, at the you know, first and second place in his kingdom and, and all these things. I don't think it was any of that. See, Jesus never will define you by who you were. Amen? He never does say, you know, this is so-and-so the porn addict or so-and-so the alcoholic or someone or, or so-and-so the abuser. He calls us by who he is making us by the sanctifying power of his blood. And so I think he nicknamed them the sons of thunder because they spoke with such eloquence and authority that Jesus gave them that, that great nickname. When they spoke the gospel, they thundered. And if you don't believe that, read the first part of John's gospel where he says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Man, have more beautiful words ever been penned. You have Matthew. Gabe shared with us a message a couple weeks ago about Matthew. Matthew is a former tax collector. He's an enemy of the Jewish state and a Roman sympathizer. And yet, he serves shoulder to shoulder with the other Simon. We know him as Simon the Zealot. If you don't know anything about the Zealots, Simon is literally a part of an anti-Roman guerrilla warfare unit and, and he's serving right alongside this former tax collector. Do you see how... Love for Jesus and the call of Jesus melts us all, all of our differences, into unity and love in Christ's presence. Man, that's a good news for us today, isn't it? See, we live in a time when Christians segregate. Everything is so specialized and, and, and oriented to your affinity. So, of course, we have children's groups and youth groups and seniors groups and men's groups and women's groups. But now we also have churches for bikers, churches for cowboys. There's virtual churches that you can go to online if you're an extreme introvert. You can have an avatar instead of a face. We gather in different churches by our race, by our economic status, by our political views. Some churches even have different services based on your particular taste for either traditional worship or contemporary worship. How many differences can we count between our day and the day when Jesus called 12 guys that could not be any more dissimilar and said, you are my disciples. How far have we drifted from that? See, a biblical church is ideally a mix of young and old serving each other. It's a mix of every race united in worship of the one Lord from whom they all sprang. It's a place of diversity, but not, as you hear in the world, for diversity's sake, but as a a representation of the unity that exists in Christ's body. Now listen, we're not talking about diversity with those that don't recognize that Jesus is the only way to the Father or or diversity uh, of those that think that some gross sin should be left undisturbed and unrepented of. The diversity we want, modeled by the twelve disciples, exalts God and honors His Word. And we don't see a better picture of it anywhere in the Bible till we get to the very end. Revelation chapter 5. 
All of God's people are gathered around his throne, giving him praise. And this is what we read. And they sang a new song to the Lamb that's uh, given to us in the previous chapter. And they said, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood, listen to this, you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them collectively a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That is God exalting diversity. And may God help us and bless us at Northwards Life to be a God exalting example of it. So the marks of a disciple given to us in this in this simple account from Mark is this. Christ's disciples are the people he desires, not people who have religiously signed up for something. They're called to be near him and to know him in relational closeness. And that closeness is cultivated first by immersion in scripture, then by prayer and worship and all other holy duties. As we are near him, he sends us out to proclaim the same kingdom he proclaims, mostly by living godly lives of adoration boldly in the presence of our family and our neighbors. Disciples don't split off into tribes that look exactly like themselves, but rather they show the beauty of diversity as they're united to one another in the universal family of God. Now, here's the question. Does that describe the way we are? Does it describe the way we view our call? Does it describe the way we do we view our duty to go? Does it describe the way that we live in harmony with our brothers and our sisters that are different than us, that have different political views or different, you know, race or whatever, whatever the difference might be? Do we only like people in our age group or people, you know, that uh, uh, like the same things that we do? Well, that's not the church. Would you all stand? Lord, we thank you for your word. God, we thank you, even if we haven't done it for a long time, we thank you for your call. We thank you that the Bible tells us in a couple of places that even before the foundation of the world, you called us to be yours. And Lord, we thank you for the confirmation from Mark that you called us because you wanted us. God, we didn't have to twist your arm or make it through your initiation process, Lord. We responded to your call and we came and now we belong to you. So, Lord, we pray that you would let us live in the joy of that reality. Lord, attune our our hearts to hear your, now that we've heard your call, to hear your command to go. Lord, help us to immerse ourselves in the things that will make us love you deeply so that we will speak up boldly. Lord, help us to walk in unity with the others that you've called that are nothing like ourselves. So, Lord, we thank you for this. Make us holy. Teach us to pray. Help us to rejoice in you and you alone. In Jesus' name.
Amen. So Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of Jesus. Thank you for the unity of the body of Christ. Thank you that we can be unified because you are the head of your body, the church. And Lord, I pray that we would all be functioning members and that we would, we would serve you in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would place your hands in receiving position, I want to speak this closing benediction over you. It's an advice to, or not advice, it's a, it's a command to, to the church as one body. Paul says in Colossians 3.12, Put on then as, Christ, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against an, another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.